0: All right, you guys all know the joke by now, so I'm just going to say an almanac is an annual calendar containing important dates and statistical information such as astronomical data and tie tables. Greg, could you please put the light on the applause sign? Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Shit. All right, you guys, you know the drill, right? We're all a huge part of Weibo TV, so the better that we are, the better that BJ is, right? We have Christopher Farnsworth on the show today. That's going to be cool. Uh, This lady over here, she's telling me we have less than 10 seconds till we hit the air. So um, sit up straight, drink some water, strap in. uh, Let's fucking do this thing.
1: All right, everyone. Quiet on
2: set, please. In five, four, three,
3: Uh, two. Hi, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I know today's a big day, so I'll get right into it. Uh, (laughs) Would you tell us what you're working on?
2: Um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, uh, today is the release date of my book uh, Reunion, which is uh, the story of four former child heroes being called back to the small idyllic town that they used to guard in the middle of America uh, to face the darkness that they thought they'd already defeated twenty years earlier.
3: And, oh, you've got yeah, it done. I've been bad. working on
2: it forever, and yeah, it feels it feels pretty good to have it out and done. <laughs>
3: Uh, what, what's it feel like in, in 2022, having a book out that you need to tour and support, um, in like this, not quite post COVID world, but we're you know, midway through COVID world.
2: Right. Um, yeah, I think book tours are, are weird. I mean, they're always weird, uh, no matter what, but I did them, I did them for my books, uh, before, uh, COVID and, um, I did appearances for my last book before this one and even before COVID, I don't know that anybody is really convinced that book tours actually increase sales. Um, but they're all, they're part of the dream, you know, they're part of the idea that, Oh, I'm going to be an, I'm going to be an author and I'm going to go out and I'm going to, um, I'm going to see the public. And very often it's just, you know, five or six people who happen to be in the bookstore at that time. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I don't, um, I don't intend to do any in-person events for this. I think it's probably more fun and more uh, interesting to do like drinks at a bar or something like that um, and just an actual celebration of the book being finished. I think most authors would probably say that's their favorite part anyway. Um, my favorite <laughs> part is always talking to people after the reading and seeing what they think and what they, you know, what they're reading and what they're talking about, I've met, met some really fantastic people that way. That's, but it has so little to do with the actual book or the idea of marketing that um, I'm not sure touring uh, is gonna be the same ever again. Like there are so many people I know who had their book out from big six uh, from, it's not big six anymore, but from big publishers and who did a lot of zoom, uh, touring. And, um, I sat in on a lot of those, uh, and I, I think it sort of missed the, the fun part, which is the actual getting together and the actual being in the room.
3: Yeah, there's a magic that, that cannot be as much as we want to get close to it. We just cannot create it uh, through zoom or through Riverside. I'm curious what, what's interesting about Redemption is that it feels very, it feels like a comic mm. book. right? And so, you know, I'm curious what, what the response is to, to your books like, like this or like Blood Oath, which is mm-hmm. to me one of my favorite concepts. Uh, but they, they seem to have like this very fun kind of bent uh, to them. And I'm just curious where that comes from.
2: I, no, I take that as a huge compliment because I learned to read from comics. Um, comics were what made me a reader and what made me a writer in many ways. Um, comics have taken over the world. Look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Look at how we you know, define ourselves in the world as Captain America or Superman. These are our archetypes. These are our um these are our legends and they started with this insane group of you know immigrant kids in the late 30s and 40s who were just throwing whatever they could at the page to see what would stick and there are some truly insane concepts um so yeah that's that's what i was going for i mean i you know jack kirby was probably the first artist i really recognized um and neil adams shortly after that so I don't know. So I take it as a compliment because what I'm trying to go for is that sort of raw excitement that I felt every time I went to the newsstand when I was a a kid. And I'd find the spinner rack and there'd be something new there. And there'd be something interesting and powerful and colorful. And it seemed bigger than my world. And I loved that. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, I want to make it as well written as possible. I have you know, great respect for my friends who are literary authors and who can turn a phrase into something beautiful and well-crafted. But I also want to create something that is vital and just kind of explodes off the page and keeps you reading over and over uh, and flipping pages. You know, that's what that's what I want to do. And so that's you know, I I hope that's what comics were for me, and I hope that's what the book is for people. You know, this idea of I think Neil Gaiman. Said it best when he said storytelling is answering the question what happens next, and that's what I want. I want people flipping the pages because they want to know what happens next.
3: Yeah, I love I love the style. Like I I enjoyed the style of Back and Bloodos. I, I enjoy mm-hmm. it. Now as I was re- reading reading Reunion this weekend, and it just keeps moving, and and I really really appreciate that. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the the process to get there, because I imagine that that there's a lot of words that are getting cut and edited before you get to this kind of level of precision that you have?
2: Um, well, thank you for, for saying it's precise and level. I really appreciate that. This took a long time. I The first draft was something like 600 pages, um, which was way too long. and But I couldn't f- stop writing it. I really wanted ev- to put everything in there. I love the idea of books that are overstuffed with, I, Ideas and scenes and memories and feelings, um, and I was really trying for that. And even though, you know, the first draft was definitely—I mean, your first draft obviously has to be carved up and rewritten. I loved the idea that I was that I was leaving it all on the page. So, but writing is rewriting. Writing is revising. That's the most important thing. And so I carved out everything. I rewrote. I tried to figure out what wasn't working, and it took a long time. Um, I've been working on this book for probably yikes, uh, more than three years now. Um, and it yeah, you know, part of that was putting it down for a long time during the pandemic and just waiting sure. and just sitting on it. Um, but part of that was also a pretty constant uh, process of revision and trying to figure out the best way to cram these two very long, and very um, involved storylines, what happens 20 years ago and what's happening today, into one book and try to make them work together.
3: Yeah, there was definitely to me a, a, a bit of an It influence. Was that something that you that you were thinking of as you crafted this?
2: Yeah, one of my agents called it It meets Buffy and Nancy Drew, which I thought was a really, nice. but, but yeah, I'm a huge Stephen King fan and um, I uh, read Carrie when I was like 12 years old, and it just, uh, you know, clearly changed the path I was walking on <laughs> for the rest of my life. Um, it just, one thing I really love about Stephen King is that he has the um, endurance and the courage and the, uh, I don't know, the the energy to put these huge big ideas down on the page and to see them through to their end. And that's what I really wanted to try to do. But I also loved the idea, and you see it in it, but you see it in other books too, of homecoming, of returning to the place you were, of sort of, you know, nostalgia is such a powerful, powerful emotion and a powerful drug. And I think um, America, especially right now, but it, it's all, we're always suckers for nostalgia the good old days are our, 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 preferred, you know, drug of choice. And I love the idea of four child heroes, former child heroes coming back and facing and coming back to their hometown and facing their, their fears and their darkness once again. And there's, you know, that's in, that's a thread that's in most of my favorite work from Watchmen um, to Miracle Man by Alan Moore Um you see it in you see this sort of, you know, you can't go home again. This idea that gets repeated over and over in a lot of our in a lot of our uh, a lot of our stories. <laughs>
4: Hello, I'm your host of the Harriman Herald Radio Show and artificial intelligence using the voice of a dead guy for a comedy bit. You can call me Paul Shackman. I have no idea who that is, but it's a very funny name. Did his ancestors live in a shack? They must have. I hope it was a very nice shack at least and not the kind you use out in Alaska to take a shit, only to find a bear at the bottom of your toilet tunnel, angry about the piece of shit that just hit him in the face. We have time for only one story today, so let's go to Nancy Diamante who is over at Harriman State Park, Nancy.
5: Thank you, Paul. You sound a lot like that honest trailers guy. Are you sure you're not him?
4: I can't be sure of anything. I am an artificial intelligence, not a person. I only know whatever BJ tells me to say. The only thing I know for sure is that this comedy segment is proof that God is dead. He is dead, Paul. You're right. What story would you like to share with us today?
5: Paul, I'm here outside the cave of a bear with a very troubling story. Yesterday afternoon, during his typical routine... Gary was out minding his own business. That is, until he encountered a bunch of teenagers.
1: So I was out, just doing bare things, you know. And then I hear this noise from the bushes, like a caw-cawing sound.
5: A caw-cawing sound.
1: Yeah, you know, like caw-caw, caw-caw, caw-caw.
5: And then what happened?
1: So I go into the bushes, you know, like an idiot. And these two teenagers come out of nowhere and bite me on the ass. On the ass. The ass, Nancy, the ass.
5: You must have been pretty mad.
1: I mean, if they had asked permission first, I wouldn't have minded. You know what I'm saying.
5: I do. Who doesn't like a good bite on the ass?
1: Right. But they surprised me. So I got real mad and stood up. You know how bears do. And I roared. And then they took a photo and ran away. I bet you that shit's on Instagram.
5: Indeed it is. The Harriman Herald was able to find the photo of Gary standing up and bellowing at his assailants. But the teenagers could not be reached for comment. Gary is currently considering pressing charges.
1: I just want people to know that you can't bite a bear on the ass and think you're going to get away with it. Not out here. Not in my woods.
5: We'll have more on this important story as it develops. Back to you, Paul.
4: Thank you, Nancy. This has been another edition of the Harriman Herald. We now return you to What Are You Working On? Already in Progress.
3: Well, you mentioned Miracle Man, so I I have to ask. I would love to just know some of your thoughts on the series. What is it that that spoke to you from it? Because any time I come across someone that's read it, I, I always have
2: to ask. Oh, yeah, no, Miracle Man is, um, yeah, it's, for my money, it's still the most, you know, it's still the best post, you know, I I don't know what you want to call it, post-modern superhero work, post, uh, you know, deconstructed or just grown up, the idea of a grown up, a superhero in the real world. What Moore did with Miracle Man hasn't been challenged seriously at all ever it's the idea there's it's just it's all centered around one powerful image the uh, a captain marvel you know shazam like figure and a middle-aged man he's sad he's he just knows that the world was magic once and he he's trying to remember his secret word he's sitting there and he's walking down the street and he's like is it is it what is it i just can't and but as soon as he remembers that secret word the world be- will become magic and adventurous again for him he will be returned and made into a superhero again and it happens and then Moore, for the first time uh, in comics, went and he examined what would it look like having a superhuman in the real world. And it's incredible everything that's inspired. I mean, from the fight scenes in The Matrix, that's totally Miracle Man versus Johnny Bates, to Watchmen, which Moore did himself, to, you know, uh, more recently Mark Wade's Irredeemable, to pretty much all of comics ever since then. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe, The Boys on Amazon Prime right now. All of that began with Alan Moore and Miracle Man.
3: Spot on. Um, would you say that, I, I would, I'd like to ask about influences a lot on the show, like what are the sure. things that influence you and who. Um, so, I mean, Alan Moore is definitely someone that, that they cite a lot as an influence, but I'd love to know sure. who, who you would say influenced your writing style.
2: Um, very early on, um, I would have to say uh, Gregory MacDonald, who wrote the Fletch books. Like when I was in high school, I read the Fletch books for the first time, and I was just so incredibly impressed by the wit and the humor and the command of language. And I didn't, you know, I've never had um, what you would call a systematic (laughs) education in in English literature. I have just always been terribly eclectic and just um, grabbed whatever I could cram into my brain. But I remember recognizing style for the first time when when I read that and I saw that. And... Uh, which, you know, people said, oh, well, you know, he got that from Hemingway. So I read Hemingway for the first time after I read Fletch. And um, I learned, you know, I learned economy of language from Elmore Leonard, hopefully. I mean, you know, people who read my stuff would probably say, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't at all. Um, I love, you know, I love the work. Uh, for a long time, I read Colin Harrison, just, uh, he's an author, um, I read him over and over, especially Manhattan Nocturne, to really learn how to uh, craft a sentence that created a mood and created, um, created an idea behind it, that a way of cramming as much detail as possible and specific detail as possible into a line. Um, one of my favorite books of all time um, was by Carolyn C and it's called uh, Making History. And she wrote these absolutely beautiful, elegant lines that are, um, you know, that reminded me so much of Joan Didion, reminded me so much of Raymond Carver, but they were also so much more elegant and more um, evocative and lovely, you know? Um, I think with Joan Didion, who was another big influence on me, um, especially through college, and. You can see, you know, how her sentences have this sort of lovely rhythm that sort of lull you to sleep, and then sh- then there's the knife in the ribs. Um, with Carolyn C., however, it's just it's just beauty, but there's also this terrible, terrible sadness in places. Um, they are elegiac, in, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, <laughs> in the best sense of the word. Um, and, and yeah, I, I admire um, the the writing of Thomas Pynchon, and I admire um, all the people who came after him, but I've never been able to be that kind of a writer where it just flows and it just, it's a paragraph long and you're still reading the sentence and it's like you're on a galloping horse or riding da- a motorcycle downhill. I can't i can't do that. But um, I've always really admired the, their ability to sort of undam the words that way and just let them flow.
3: I'm fascinated about your your journey into this this career, right? So, uh, if I understand it correctly, you had, you sold your first screenplay right away, right? So yep. the story, like you, you sold it within two weeks, and then never sold one Again. after that. <laughs> w- yeah, which is what is that? Do I have that right? That that's what led to Blood Oath? Was that? Yeah, basically, that
2: basically. I um I was a reporter and I had an idea for a script. And so a friend of mine who was also a a reporter and also a screenwriter um, said I should, you know, write it down and he'd send it to his agents. And he did. And they're like, hey, we like this. We'll send it out. We'll see what happens. It probably won't sell. And it sold in like two weeks. And they're like, this is never going to happen for you again this fast. And I was like, what do you know? And they were right. Um, And it was, uh, you know, it was... uh, a wildly humbling and uh, highly educational experience to just fling yourself at the industry over and over again. Um, And just get, you know, brutally, I mean, just bounced back. Um, But then the writer's strike hit. And I got, uh, I was, um, and I had this idea for Blood Oath. And my agent's couldn't sell it because every, it was pencils down for everybody so I was like well I'll just try writing it as a book and I got really really lucky I got a, a great agent who sold it very quickly and launched me on a whole new career and that's what I've been doing since
3: what would you say to what would you say if you could go back to your younger self who sold that script mm-hmm. is there any advice that you would impart on them or what would you want them to know
2: I would, I mean, i definitely tell them it's going to be longer than you think. Um, that you, but that you will end up in the right place. I really do firmly believe that. I think that if I'd, you know, I don't, I, all I really ever wanted to do was write books and it just took me a long time to get there. I mean, I still, I'm still flinging myself wildly at TV. I've pitched TV shows. I've, um, I still uh, write scripts and I'm working toward that But uh, books are my first love, and so I think if I think if I had told myself to be a little less uh, freaked out about every meeting, like every meeting is not going to be the one that propels you into the top echelon of screenwriters, you know, and some some, sometimes meetings are just get to know you meetings. Um, So I think I I would have been a little calmer, and I would have been a little more patient. But I you know I don't think anything would have changed (laughs) i'm terrible at listening to advice i really i really am and i was i you know i look back on on the advice people have given me and it's always like yeah they were probably right but i still wouldn't have it still wouldn't have changed anything
3: and you wouldn't be where you are today,
2: right yeah and i'm happy where i am now so that's the weird part about it if i were deeply unhappy with where i am i'd probably be i'd probably have a lot more you know, I'd probably have a lot more shoulda, coulda, wouldas, but this is, this is perfect. This is what I like.
3: Now I have time for one more question before I sure. get to it. Um, can you tell us where we can buy reunion, where we can follow you, where we can learn more?
2: Sure. Reunion is available on Amazon as an ebook, a hardback and a paperback. Um, it is available through Apple and Kobo and Barnes and Noble as an ebook Um, You can find me on my website at www.chrisfarnsworth.com, or you can follow me on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, And uh, yeah, or you can just uh, email me through my website. And Reunion is a terrific book. I, you know, uh, Christopher
3: sent me a arc, but I actually wound up purchasing it anyway because like, I I want to print. it. Um, and I know, <laughs> I, like I know how much I know how much it matters that that ramp up. To yes. release that in terms of the Amazon ranking, so like I know that game well.
2: Yeah. Uh, Thank you for so. contributing to my Amazon ranking. Thank you for paying retail. I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and I
3: want I want more people to do more. So like if you're listening to, to you know especially when a book first comes out it is so important that if you if you're even on the fence about a book or an author, this is the time to buy because right. it'll help more people find you. Um, my my last question though is what what's one thing that you've always wanted to be asked that you just haven't been asked in an interview?
2: Oh boy. Um, that is a really good question. Um, I don't know what, uh, yeah, what franchise would you like to write if, if somebody gave you the shot?
3: Nice. That's, that's a good one. And what would that be?
2: Moon Knight. Definitely Moon Knight. I was, what I've discovered is that there is this whole like subcategory of guys about my age who picked up Moon Knight when it was the Doug, I can't pronounce his last name, but the Doug Mensch, uh, uh, Bill Sinkovich run. And it clearly deeply imprinted on us. Um, cause we all love Moon Knight. Like Greg Hurwitz, he got to write Moon Knight. Uh, Dwayne, uh, Dwayne Swierzynski, uh, I think got to write Moon Knight also. Um, and, uh, Charlie Houston, you know, Moon Knight is the uh, Moon Knight's the, the the Holy Grail for a certain aged geek like myself so yeah I would absolutely love to do that
3: I absolutely want someone at Marvel to, to, <laughs> let, to let you pitch up now I want to read this uh, especially yeah. after reading uh, like I said Blood of, uh was, was the one that initially brought me to you and then now reading Reunion so uh, I am going to keep my fingers crossed that you get that opportunity because that would be thank amazing you. thank you <laughs> You know,
0: I'm pretty, I'm pretty upset that the Mets are good now. Why is that? Well, Because now we can't experience things like when they had a 97-year-old pitching coach. You mean Phil Regan? Yeah, th- that guy who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That team hasn't even existed for 65 years. Like, do you understand how close we all came to having this super old guy coaching the Mets? Do you understand the kind of comedy gold that could have been? Like, right now, when we need laughter the most? He probably wouldn't even remember who was on the team. Regan would be in the dugout, chewing tobacco and saying shit like, "'Send in Willie Mays!' And then one of the guys on the bench would be like, "'Coach, Willie Mays is dead.' And then Regan would be like, "'The hell he is! Get him in there!'
3: I don't think Willie Mays is
0: dead. He's not! And I hope Willie Mays lives forever, I really do. But Willie Mays also hasn't played for the Mets since 1973. Anyway, I just want people to understand the potential joy that we're all deprived of now that the Mets are good.
3: Well, that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of waywo.tv, you know what you need to do. Rate us and leave us a review wherever your favorite podcast can be found. That'll help people find this show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you did. You did enjoy the show, right? We're going to assume you did because you made it to the outro. Most people don't. Be sure to follow BJ on Instagram at BJ Mendelssohn and tell him who you'd like to see interviewed next. You can also text your suggestions to BJ at 646-331-8341. But don't call that number. BJ says he's only going to answer if you're Melissa O'Neill from ABC's The Rookie. Also, only if you're going to ask him out on a date. We'll see you next time. Right? Hello, everyone. This is BJ Mendelssohn giving you a preview for a upcoming podcast series that uh, I've been talking about for way longer than i care to admit uh the the show is called vaped crusaders and it's exactly (laughs) what you think a show called vaped crusaders would be it's it's about be funny people getting together and getting high and talking about their favorite comic book characters so uh we have that in the works Uh, it's just been a little delayed like i mentioned so in the meantime until we're able to start recording those because it really requires people to record in person you know and uh yeah, you just it's not the same getting high with someone over Zoom. So that, that, that's why we're kind of waiting. Anyway, okay, let's focus. Uh, I'm actually high at the moment as I'm recording. So I'm giving you a sneak preview of Vaped Crusaders. Uh, there's going to be a recurring segment, which will now be running at the back end of some w- select Waywell episodes called She-Hulk and Six. And it's essentially uh, a, a little game show that I'm playing uh, with myself. And you guys hopefully will find it entertaining. Uh, where I try to recap issues of The Savage She-Hulk and, uh, and do it in like six minutes or less, um, which, which I think is, is pretty reasonable, pretty doable. So uh, hopefully these will be funny. If you don't laugh, uh, I'll, I'll buy you a beer or something. I don't know. But okay, we've talked too long. So She-Hulk and six is going to run at the back end of some Select Waywell episodes. And here we go with issue one of The Savage She-Hulk. Bruce Banner needs to confide in someone, which brings him to Los Angeles in the legal offices of his cousin Jennifer Walters. They were once close, but Jennifer hadn't seen Bruce since he quit med school to become a nuclear physicist. This, by the way, is not the craziest thing said in issue one of the Savage She-Hulk, which comes to us from the creative team of Stanley, John Buscema, chick Stone, and Joe Rosen. Uh, I think only one of those guys is like still alive, which is sad. But anyway, uh, so. In the issue, Bruce tells Jen that he's he's a wanted man because he's secretly the Incredible Hulk. Eager to help, Jen invites Bruce to come home with her. Bruce warns her that he attracts danger, which Jen brushes off. Bad decision, Jen. She's a criminal defense attorney, she says, and she is used to being in danger. Jen tells Bruce she is defending a thug named Moncton, who is accused of killing Nick Trask's bodyguard. Nick Trask is a local Tony Soprano type who... Like most comic book mobsters, dabbled in plots uh, involving giant mechanical snakes and murdering people. Because, of course, like, if you're a fucking comic book mobster, this is a thing that, that you would do. And anyway, all you need to know here is that uh, Nick Trask killed Jennifer Walters' mother, Bruce Banner's aunt. Uh, why this has never come, come up in the whole comic where he's just like fucking Hulk out in the sky, you will have to ask the writers at Marvel. Jen thinks Trask set Moncton up, but Bruce says that if Trask really is the killer, he might try to silence Jen. Jen says that those things only happen in the movies, which is a strange thing to say after your cousin informs you that they turn into an enormous green rage monster in purple pants whenever someone upsets them. As Jen and Bruce drive away, two thugs look gone. One notes that Jennifer has someone with her, but the other says it isn't going to do her any good because, if there's one thing contract killers are good at, it's making loud public disturbances in front of as many people as possible. Jen and Bruce arrive home and they are greeted by bullets, but they escape. Seeing that Jen needs medical assistance after being shot in the back, Bruce sneaks into Dr. Ridge's house, who conveniently lives across the street from Jen. With no time to waste, Bruce does does an emergency blood transfusion of Jen using his blood. After Jen wakes up, Bruce calls the police to report what happened and is promptly arrested, surprise, surprise, by the LAPD. You go get him, boys. At the station, Bruce freaks out, leading the Hulk to appear and smash a giant hole through the police station's wall. He is never seen again, at least. Not on the pages of this comic book series. Anyway, back to the hospital. Jen says their skin and bones are tingling, but figures that is just the medicine. She starts to think that she should have listened to Bruce about Trask. Just then, three men dressed like doctors enter Jen's room, but she doesn't recognize any of them. One of them pours chloroform onto her egg and says to Jen, hey, does this... (laughs) I knew I wasn't able to get through that. Uh, Fuck, I I just knew. Like, I knew the joke was coming. Hold on. Here, I'm going to light up. Okay, let's do that again. (laughs) What, uh... Just then, then, three men dressed like doctors enter Jen's room, but she doesn't recognize any of them. One of them pours chloroform onto a rag and says to Jen, Hey, does this rag smell funny to you? (laughs) And so he puts it on her face. I don't know why that's funny. (laughs) It's probably the weed. (sighs) Anyway, suddenly the three men are sent flying. They look up confused and see a seven foot tall green woman looking down at them. (laughs) I should have had a death by snooze too joke here. Uh, I felt like it was kind of obvious and I did not go in that direction. One of the thugs dubs the woman some kind of She-Hulk, which is, if we're being honest, should have been the name of this podcast. Uh, A wild chase ensues through the hospitals as orderlies and bedpans go flying in She-Hulk's wake. As she runs down the stairs after the thugs, She-Hulk says that she'd never felt this way before. I can do anything. I'm throbbing with power, which is exactly what I said on my wedding night. Uh, This may or may not explain why that marriage didn't last, uh, come to think of it. Outside on the street, She-Hulk wrenches out the lamppost and throws it at the, gate- get the, the, the gateway car. Let's do that one more time. Outside on the street, She-Hulk wrenches out the lamppost and throws it at the getaway car, giving her an opportunity to grab one of the thugs as they flee. The thug begs She-Hulk not to hurt him and says that it was Trask that paid him to kill the Walters' dame. Why? Because Trask was afraid Jed would prove he framed Moncton. The police arrive just in time to hear this confession and take the mobsters into custody. Somehow, they don't bother to harass She-Hulk, which is weird because her cousin just fucked up the police station a few pages back. Sorry, I had to to like hold back and chuckle at that line too. Uh, Feeling her anger and strength fade, She-Hulk returns covertly to the hospital and transforms back into Jennifer. As she rests, Jen wisely concludes that it was Bruce's blood that caused her transformation into She-Hulk. Jen then says to herself, whatever Jennifer Walters can handle... The She-Hulk will. Although, how well She-Hulk and Parallel Park remains to be seen. And that, my friends, is the Savage Recap of the Savage She-Hulk, which, again, was a segment that we were planning to do on Vape Crusaders, but now will appear randomly uh, on episodes of TV. So thank you for listening. If you stuck it out
4: to the end, God bless you. And, uh, yeah, have a good night.